The Sex Agenda podcast may contain references to sexual violence, sexual assault or sexual oppression. Our listeners' well-being is our priority. Please feel free to tune out if you need to. Hi, welcome to episode eight um, of the Sex Agenda podcast. Um, yes. I'm Dr. Annabelle Shomimo. I'm a community sexual reproductive health registrar and founder of Decolonizing Contraception. I'm Edmund Chimi, um, community engagement at DC, but also co-director with Annabelle. Babes, we are halfway through the season. Imagine. I mean, this year is just like, <laughs> it is sprinting past us. So this is our episode on Black fatherhood. And we're going to get into it later with Darwin from Dope Black Dads. Um, yes, but yeah. Listeners, listeners, some of you have been completing our survey. We thank you for your feedback. Keep keep doing it. The survey link is in our description. We appreciate you. We want to hear all your comments, good or bad, what you would like us to talk about. Keep keep filling in. Absolutely. We appreciate all of you and the great feedback that you've given us so far. So shall we so get into the news? Oh, oh, you wanted I mean, to ask me something? Yeah, like, how are you? Before we get into the news, how are you? Because our news like rolls quite deep. <laughs> Listen, um, I'm not great at the moment. It's more of like a physical thing. Uh, I've had a cold since like last week. I've been jugging day and night nurse like nobody's business. And within the recommended dosage, I promise I'm not I'm not harming myself. <laughs> <It's all good. laughs> not not on that source, like a, no, a well known no, no. rapper used to, no, no, used no, to no, be. No, no, we're being responsible and reasonable. How about you? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Like, um, so people may know from previous episodes that I got a puppy. So his name's Quill. <laughs> I like writing and I like theatre and I thought I'd be fancy. I'll call him Quill. Um, mm. I just honestly couldn't think of like an alternative. I kept on going through things. I was going to call him Fella at one point and then somebody was like, oh yeah, like little Fella. And I was like, no, uh, we're not that, going to do that. That's a no, yeah. dog. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, we need to, we need to think that again. Yeah. He's he's Power. he's got a lot of energy, and I think even more energy than like most puppies have. He's a cockapoo oh. for people who know their dog breeds. So that's like poodle, cockapoo, um, cock spaniel cross. And I can give him puzzles. I can take him for walks. <laughs> this puppy is not tired. He still wants to play. He's not tired. <laughs> yeah. So that that is kind of making me a little stressed but mm. the snuggles the snuggles are good so at the moment I am managing but basically everyone knows this a dog isn't just for Christmas puppies are a real commitment and I don't think anybody can like fully comprehend just how mobile and busy they are until they are in your house mm -hmm. and then like running around like they pay bills <laughs> doing do doing treat negotiations i saw your tweet the other day you were like this I dog mean, is trying to like, negotiate I, with me. he's like trying to hustle me for treats like i'm like you just ate your dinner and he's like nudging me in the leg i'm like i can't just live anymore i can't live freely in my own home um yes so, so that's where that's where we're at. But yeah, let's get into let's get into our news stories. So yeah. um, kicking it off, a lot of different platforms have reported some of these stories, but we've just picked up a few of the articles that we think might summarize some of the some of the issues. So Refinery29 have um, an article about um companies offering um paid leave after pregnancy loss. Um and yeah, as somebody that as part of my job role uh, manages miscarriage quite frequently I think I've always been like really surprised as because you know like we're not really taught about miscarriage at all and until I started my training and um, working in this sector I didn't really know about miscarriage I didn't know how common it was I didn't know how traumatic it could be I didn't know like what the complications or that like sometimes you have to keep going back and forth a few times until like the whole pregnancy's passed 
it was an eye opener and it's and I think that it's just handled really badly. Mm. Yeah, this story made me think about at my old workplace a couple of years ago. Um, one of my actually they were my manager was pregnant. Um, we weren't aware they were pregnant, but then they suffered a miscarriage whilst they were at work and um the ambulance had to be called, they had to be taken away. And we were a sexual health organization, but I remember there being so much like hush and shush and mystery around it do you know what I mean why she had to take some time off people were being like very vague and all of that and I know that's that's you know like the society stigma and also like you know people like their privacy but it's just very interesting how sort of the social socially how we talk about miscarriage and how we talk about people who lose pregnancy so it is good to see some organizations coming forward and recognizing that it can be quite a difficult time and giving people leave time off because of it whether it's like because of the physical emotional trauma or just people need time off to sort of process and 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 try and get back to their day-to-day because it's quite it's a huge thing right to get back into the day-to-day of things so it's really good I mean I thought like a a section reproductive health sector would probably be like the leading area in this kind of like policy and this kind of thinking it's a shame that we aren't but yeah yeah so I think it's really amazing that some organizations are leading on this so there's articles really talking about channel four and digital bank monzo who are offering two weeks paid leave following a pregnancy loss such as miscarriage um abortion or stillbirth before 24 weeks and I think it's amazing that they Mm. are including all of these things we should see more more organizations follow suit but then also again like I don't think we should be leaving it for organizations I think it should be consistent right like so it should just be part of government policy that people can Mm. get this time if they if they require it because people recover at different rates like some of Mm -hmm. these things people are just like bounce back let's go but it happens to one in four people one in four you know and it is it is traumatic and um I think it's really important that we brought this up actually because um we also don't talk about the effect on um the male partner often either Mm. um and I feel that sometimes couples go through pregnancy loss trauma they might be going through infertility and um, I do think that also space needs to be made for that conversation I think this was a nice article to see that we got progress happening yeah so our next news story it's from pink news and it's about the wonderful amazing talented actor Billy Porter who has been in the industry for years and years been on Broadway and stuff but I guess I only you know got to know about their work and how amazing they are through the wonderful um, series Pose. Um, He has revealed recently that he is HIV positive and has been living with the virus for over 14 years Um, and the article goes on to talk about how he disclosed his status to his mother, how he disclosed his status to the rest of the cast that he was working with in Pose and how he's living his life moving forward. And it's just so, I mean, I know we say it a lot and I, I can't think of any other word but inspiring, but it, it must have been really difficult. Um, and he talks about in the article, you know, living with this thing and knowing that people might treat him differently if they were to find out how it might affect his career. You know, it's it's very interesting that we've come such a long way, yet stigma is still the thing that we're having to fight on, like, on a regular basis. We're having to educate people about on a regular basis. What do you think, Annabelle? I just celebrate that he has managed to um, share this news. Obviously, I think people's status, it, whether they share that or not, is completely up to them. Today, we know that you means you, you equals you. So undetectable means untransmissible. So if you're on treatment and your viral load is undetectable, that you cannot transmit the virus. And I think that piece of information has made more people confident to share their status because they can be like, oh, I'm 
on treatment I'm not going to transmit the virus and I think that's really amazing but I also think it's really awful that it's taken this piece of research for people to not feel stigmatized Mm -hmm. sharing their status um so I first got to know about Billy Porter through his like Met Gala looks so he has (laughs) amazing looks celebrating everything that it means to be like a black gay icon at the Met Gala, like he had that amazing rainbow cape. Oh, oh my God, just <clears throat> love, <Stunning>. love, love, love. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think this article was really important for a lot of people that will be looking at this and being like, can I come out and share my status? I think, you know, it shows you that he as a celebrity in it, he goes through the fact that he was like at one point when he discovered he was having HIV, he was facing bankruptcy, his mm. career wasn't doing well, he didn't actually even tell his mother until like, you know, recently. And that's one of the reasons he came out and shared it with other people. Mm. So I just think it shows that like there's still so much stigma um for black gay people that have HIV and we know the rates in our community is so much higher. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I just think it was a great thing for him to do to shine a light on the issue. Um, But even his story reveals that, like, we have a considerable way to go, right? So Yes, absolutely. Um, Yeah, sending, like, lots of love Billy's way. And I hope that Billy sharing his story makes other people come to terms with their diagnosis and what the future you know holds for them yeah and also I have to say that like poses and you mentioned poses an amazing Netflix series yeah I know people have mixed opinions because you know it's again one of those shows that's very much about like the the queer showbiz side of things but it just also tells um a really great history about um HIV absolutely um, and what it meant to live with that disease for you know various people Mm -hmm. Um, within the 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 drag scene in like the 80s and things like that so yeah go watch it definitely we recommend going to watch it um so the next news story we have is from the guardian and it's about uk women so the title of the article is uk women forced to wear face masks during labor charity fine so it's some research that pregnant then screwed I believe the charity is called um, did in terms of people who were pregnant and who had delivered during the last year during the pandemic essentially and it just goes to talk about sort of the disproportionate like um, it's not the disproportionate but the enforcement of face masks even though it had come from like sort of government guidelines and healthcare guidelines that it wasn't necessary. Um, and a lot of people talk about how that made them feel during their pregnancy. A lot of people talk about, you know, not being able to breathe. There's stories of like people being sick in their masks. There's, I think what stood out to me really was how that the mask became a barrier. So people who were pregnant were unable to communicate with their healthcare providers and the healthcare providers sort of enforcing people wearing the mask. So I don't know what your thoughts are, Annabelle. It, it, the article is like really like horrific and sad to to read really sounds like an ordeal I mean the the article's really sad because I think also I've had lots of really close friends give um birth during this this lockdown period and I'd say you know they've had mixed experiences but COVID definitely impacted people's birthing experience a lot like people at the beginning not being able to have their spouses present people um you know having their babies having to go to the intensive care unit and like having to make a choice about whether them or their partner can like be with their baby so there's been a lot of I just feel you know inhumane kind of practice whereas and obviously COVID has been inhumane you know like people having to say goodbye to loved ones on iPads and everything so I feel like this is an extension of that I think what is particularly an issue for me is that you sometimes have to weigh up like you know obviously you should always you have to weigh up like risk benefit scenario and I feel like some of the accounts people were becoming distressed with having to wear a face mask like they felt like they can't breathe they can't communicate and I'm like when somebody's laboring like that's just counterproductive at this point because 
the person's distressed, the baby's probably going to get distressed. Like it's just going to make everything worse. So I just feel like maybe from some of these accounts, it clearly wasn't like handled in the right way and people, and it's not even guidelines. So <laughs> there wasn't right, really. Right. Is it more, most importantly, that it shouldn't have been happening because mm. it went against guidance. Yeah. Um, I feel like the, the only thing to add is that we've seen the huge toll of COVID on healthcare professionals during this pandemic. And as a younger person that's less at risk because I'm, you know, fit and like I'm younger and I don't have any like other medical issues that would contribute towards me um, having a bad outcome. I felt slightly more comfortable like with my patient contact. But I know that for some healthcare professionals that fall into categories where they're more likely to have a bad outcome that they have found like, interacting with patients actually terrifying because you know colleagues have genuinely either died or got really bad you know side effects from covid i had a great colleague at the start of the pandemic that was like i'm going to you know always puts themselves at the forefront always does more work and was like i'm going to go and work in the a&e so we kind of can get patients home quicker and this is from the gynae department and got covid really quickly and did really badly in terms of recovering and like hasn't gone back to full-time working for like i think six to seven months for me i can see both sides of the story in terms of why health professionals were like overreacting or acting inappropriately possibly out of Mm. fear um and not Mm. really thinking about the patient experience but regardless it's clearly wrong how the situation is handled also i think birthrights and other organization was involved i think the work that they always do is really great so yeah and hopefully this bit of research will really inform practice going forward like you were saying it wasn't even in the guidelines for these like the strict masks wearing to be enforced but i also feel like this article helps in respect of um, you know, empowering patients, right? Like if you're aware, because I'm sure a lot of people in that situation weren't aware there wasn't even guidelines, probably just thinking about, I can't breathe, this is a horrible experience sort of thing. I think this is also hopefully going to empower patients so they can advocate for themselves and be like, well, actually it's not the guidelines for, for me to wear this mask. So hopefully people can have a much more pleasant experience. So our last news story is from BBC News um, and it's entitled My Exhausting Smear Test Battle. It outlines um, the story of those that are assigned male at birth, trans non-binary people that require cervical screening and struggling to get access um and the issues with them trying to you know make health providers aware of you know their needs um and the problem that when they're registered at gp practices as male they then don't get the flags in the system that they require cervical screening so there was a kind of an audit of 137 trans and non-binary people um, linked to the Tavistock Clinic um, and about um, half of them were eligible for a smear and 40% of them said they hadn't been screened before. And I think it's really important to raise awareness amongst medical professionals or Um, figure out a system that's a bit more robust that ensures people aren't missed and to be honest we've also seen this um, amongst cis people that they've been missed on the screening there was kind of an issue with the screening system and people weren't getting their reminders so I think there's a lot of unscreened eligible people and I think more needs to be done around this and conversely also there's been a lot of people that have missed been missed that are non-binary and trans women that require prostate checks or um you know might be having prostatic symptoms and uh you know health professionals kind of forget that they need to um also keep these things in mind so i think this is a good story for illustrating a growing issue that we're overlooking yeah definitely agree i mean what was um sort of stood out to me really was the fact that people's sort of gender identity were being changed without like their consent or inform- informing the actual patient so this is how some of 
the mist reminders for people to get smears are going about. But I think it's just an example of how sort of our healthcare system, particularly maybe like the GP surgery side of things, needs to be scaled up so that like GPs are actually more aware, more in tune with this issue so they can continue to provide uh, a good service for patients. But like you said, this is a good story in terms of getting the issue out there for people to be aware that this is the thing that's happening. This is the thing that has to be kept an eye on. We know that in terms of like getting your smear test is really important because, you know, if abnormal cells are caught early, people can have treatment and then can go on to hopefully live healthy, fulfilling lives. But we know when things are caught late, that's when it becomes like a major issue for people. So it's really important that the healthcare system, GP surgeries are sort of like in tune and are up to date in terms of what are happening and ensuring that, you know, anybody who's entitled to a, a screen and like you said, anybody who has a prostate who needs a check or is showing symptoms is, is taken care of. Yeah. So that's the end of our news um, for this episode. And we're really excited to speak to our guest, who is Darwood Grace, who is joining us from Dope Black Dads. And is going to be telling us all about um, their work in terms of challenging masculinity. I'm really looking forward to um, speaking with him. I think it's a really great initiative. Just reflecting on my own personal experience with my dad could have been a little bit more hands on, but it's really great to see people come together and offer each other support to, you know, parent their children. And I'm really looking forward to chatting. You're listening to The Sex Agenda. I'm really pleased to introduce our guests for today's episode. So we are speaking with Darwood Grace, um, he, him, who is one of the 23 founding members of Dope Black Dads. And Dope Black Dads is a digital safe space for fathers who wish to discuss the experience of being black, a parent and masculinity in the modern world. Their aim is to celebrate, heal, inspire, educate, Black Fathers for Better Outcomes for Black Families. Darwood was part of the original podcast team that worked on bringing Dope Black Dads to the BBC Sounds and BBC One Extra. He has been involved in numerous projects for Dope Black Dads, most recently the NHS Act FASD stroke campaign, as well as being a podcast host. Darwood Grace is an actor, director, writer, musician, visual artist, guys, talented and father of two sons he is currently making a short film about the perception of black fatherhood with voices of london hi Darwood. thank you for bringing your talented self to our podcast oh, thank, you me on. <laughs> thank you thank you so much so i've said a lot about dope black dad so i think we should probably start with that so can you tell us a little bit more about Dope Black Dads, how you came to be involved and just basically, you know, what you've gotten out of it and what you think you've given people out of the platform. Well, um, I've known Marvin since he was about 18, 19. Um, me and a couple of my friends used to run an evening called Verbal Intercourse where we were just a, a load of intellectuals would just gather and just talk about something. We'd sit in a circle just talk about the issues of the day. Uh, I think that was like 2003, revealing my age a little bit. Um, but yeah, uh, been friends with Marvin since then. And I was a parent quite early, earlier on. I've got a just turned 20 year old son. So I think he's um, on a father's day about three years ago, Marvin just messaged all the dads that he thought were really dope and just, wanted to shout them out on Father's Day because um, he, he didn't feel like fathers get enough recognition. Like, we don't get the same fanfare that mothers do. And we're not supposed to, but we are supposed to. So, yeah, he messaged uh, 23 guys and then we just carried on speaking because normally when you get added to a group, it just collects dust or people just start leaving unwittingly. But Was it a WhatsApp group chat? Yeah, it was a WhatsApp group. <laughs> I know what those are like. I'm sure you guys have been added by your aunts and uncles and they say prayers, Jesus Christ, oh Lord. So yeah, but no, nobody left and we just started talking about stuff, like real meaningful stuff and then realising that 
we don't actually speak about this stuff regularly. So, and it just grew and grew and grew and then more people got added and Marvin in his wisdoms decided to do a podcast and that made it expand. And I just think it was a hole in the market that even though there's other Dope Black Dads group organisations out there, I just think it was one that was different for London. So, yeah. Thank you for that. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the work, what is it? What is it that you guys do and what are some of your aims? What it is that you're trying to achieve? Yeah, we're mainly a digital safe space for men to talk. Like that's the best description. And we do have a few outreach projects where we gather the dads and we speak about like stuff and what we need to be doing because I think the consensus is that black people are only going to get to where we need to get to by concentrating on our families. Um, I, I, Individually, me personally, I believe that until black men start hailing up our black women properly, we're not going anywhere. And that, and... Speak on it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think you can treat your women badly and expect to get somewhere in life. I don't think it works like that, especially the role that black women have have in society, it's not going to work, basically. So I think the family being the cornerstone of any black movement that we need to have needs to be put to the forefront. And I think that's kind of where we try to lead to. And we've realised that because of the stereotypes about black fatherhood, a lot of men are grappling with a lot of male stereotypes put upon them and practicing toxic uh, masculinity, which I hate. I think it's um, toxic bravado because there's nothing wrong with being masculine. So yeah, um, and we're forced into these behaviors and not understanding why. So I think that's kind of where we try to foster a better father in the household because if dad's good, if mum's good, the whole household feels great. If mum or dad have got an issue, it changes the mood of the house. So that's kind of where we lean towards that, trying to make sure that dad's good. So I just want to firstly say that, yeah, firstly, congratulations, because I feel like, you know, we always say in uh, DC, like visibility and representation politics isn't everything, but it definitely starts a conversation and is definitely really important to kind of pushing the conversation forward. And first and foremost, I'm really lucky. Um, I'm somebody that had um, hasn't had my dad in my life. And, you know, some of my cousins and my close friends have not, or, you know, they did for a period. And then, you know, for whatever reason, they fell out with their dad because of their sexuality or their dad left um, to have another family or whatever, you know. And I don't know what I would personally be like without my dad, because my dad and I are actually best friends. Yeah. So, um, and I think, you know, people see me as like, you know, I'm this feminist, ro- like, well, I'm, let me not big myself up and say a role model, but I'm a, fe- <laughs> I'm a feminist with opinions. Um, so I'm going to big <laughs> her up people- and say that she is a role model. Carry on. <laughs> As you were. Yeah, yeah. Um, listen, and- that fake humbleness is for the Stand and wear your crown because it's shining. Yeah, no, but basically, I just think it's a really important thing, and I've I think I've talked about it a couple of times on our podcast, but basically, without my dad, I don't know what kind of person I would be because my dad's been so instrumental to like so many facets of my being and lots of the things that I talk about. Um, so I'm of Nigerian descent, like are quite controversial to yeah 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 you know like a typical like Yoruba dad doesn't necessarily react to things the way that you know society says that my dad does and I remember from really early on my dad and his friends would come over and you know you know like be having like their supermall and like having their chin chin in the kitchen and having debates and I would pipe up in these political debates about what was happening in Nigeria or whatever and voice my opinion and I could see some of his friends being shocked like why is your daughter like interacting with our conversation and my just my dad built me that way he was like you are a young woman with opinions and some sense and I just took that into the world and ran with it so I just I I think yeah you know fathers need to collect their flowers if you do what you do you do well (laughs) collect your flowers (laughs) and big up your dad smart guy 
smart guy. <laughs> I'm also of the notion that if you have children, they should be your best friends because you've got someone with no hidden agenda against you. Like they will always tell you the truth. If they're not feeling something, your kids will be honest enough to say, ah, dad, that's not it. Like, so why would you not have that person as your rock and someone to bounce ideas off? And that, um, you, most, most people can tell how smart their kids really are if you just allow them to be who they really are. But what happens is our ideas of parenthood get clouded by whatever we think, whatever's traumatised us probably, and that, and we start to not value our children, not understanding that they'll be grown-ups one day. And um, I'm not going to lie, I cheated. When my son was, when I knew that my son, my older son's mum was pregnant, I started talking to him in the womb because I was like, cool, we're going to be best friends and I've got to start <laughs> like, The earlier I do That's this, so the, the easier it will be like it was his birthday last week Wednesday and he turned 20 but he went to a gallery with me to go and look at artwork so he's indulging me in my passion on his birthday and that so I know that I've done a good job and that yeah that is so sweet yeah yeah but also I don't believe I'm a good good dad because it makes me not rest on my laurels because I think that the moment you get comfortable and think you're great, like you start making mistakes. Whereas if you like, cool, let me try and improve. Let me try and improve. Like, how can I improve? And and I think you should have that attitude anyway. So you just don't get complacent. Yeah. No, thank you for that. It's just very refreshing to see someone talk about parenting in this way. Because I have quite a difficult relationship with both my parents. So, you know, it's, it's taken a lot, but it just makes me recognize that there are people out there trying and that's really great. So um, can you tell just us a little, you, yep, go on. Um, I've I, I barely met you, but I've just read up a little bit about you and whatnot. <laughs> like that's not smart on their part at all. If they've got a daughter, <laughs> they've brought some, a spirit into the world like yours and they're not close and that made things difficult that's not a smart move on there yeah (laughs) it's a work in progress I hope we will get to a better place in the future I hope so I mean just on that note um and this what I mean I was like I get I get chatting these things come up but I just wanted (laughs) to say that we talk about parenting a lot on this podcast though neither myself or Edem are parents at this point something I'm in this phase of my life where I'm starting to think more about and like embarking on that journey but I love what I also love about Dope Black Dads and the work that you and your colleagues are doing is that we know that in certain communities um, particularly people of West African descent like myself and Edem you know sometimes our parents have gone through not great things with their parents and they get yeah. it, there's a cycle of um like lack of communication that people get into. And, you know, as well as having a good relationship, my dad, I've had like not good relationships with both my parents at various points in time, like a lot of people. And um, sometimes breaking down that cycle that we have in our community is really difficult. So it's really nice to see a new generation of parents trying to break that cycle of trauma that comes sometimes with like migration and yeah, you know, all of those, those other things. Yeah, very refreshing to see that. Yes. So, um, Darwood, I would like for you to tell us a little bit more about yourself. So, like, what do you do? I know I know I read your bio earlier. I said some of the things that you do, you know, but if you can tell us a bit about what you do, what your interests, what your passions are, so that the listeners can get to know you a little bit better. My real passion is making sure that I'm always present and that, like, it's a constant practice. So that's my real passion. Because I believe when you're present, you just see a lot more and you feel a lot more. And I, I am a creative. I've accepted it. Um, in fact, I've spent lockdown learning how to become a visual artist because uh, when I was about five or six, a teacher discouraged me from drawing. And instead of me saying, F the teacher, excuse my French, um, I ended up saying FR and just pushing it to one side. And then I excelled in math, sciences, like was going to become a doctor 
till the age of 16. And then I left school, went into college and I was like, oh, I could study for seven years, but my spirit just rejected it. And rejected. Yeah, just rejected. Rejection. Like, yeah. Not, the, not the doctor all shouting rejection. <laughs> yeah, it's not peace in your life. Oh, like I, I literally, I grew up wanting to be a doctor, and then it's 16, 17, I was like, I'd rather study life. And I ended up doing that, and I dropped out. And I've just been living ever since, like just in teaching myself different types of skills, and that ended up becoming a filmmaker. Ended up becoming a, a musician, but just all art-led stuff. So I think my spirit just pushed me back towards, and I feel like I'm living who I would have been if that teacher didn't divert my journey because I was too young to understand how to move. And it's another thing with parenting, like even when my older son was going through school, I used to watch what the teachers would say to him. And I would ask him, like, what what did the teacher say? And he used to get bored of the conversations, but I was like, like, it's important. Just to, and maybe I was projecting my trauma onto him, but it was like, be mindful of what people tell you. Like, make sure your opinion is great. If if your opinion's not harming yourself or nobody, make sure your opinion is louder than any echoes or reflections that you may receive from others. And that unless you are learning how a different way. So, yeah. yeah what, right. what are you talking about? No. <laughs> can, I just, yes. can I just chip in and um, quickly ask you a couple, a, a couple of things? First of all, we've spoken about education before. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of us have experiences of being dissuaded to do certain things, particularly if you're black within the education system. And aside from that, I was also told, because I always did drama and theatre growing up, and I used to be part of National Youth Theatre, but then obviously I've become a doctor. And I was basically taught that, like, you couldn't combine the two. That was, like, something that I was really taught. And I feel like now with my writing and, like, being able to podcast and stuff like that, I really feel you on that because I'm 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 living the things that I really was, like, told that I had to kind of not include, even though I tried to do drama at medical school and, People just told me I couldn't do both. But I just wanted you to speak a little bit, if you could, about you talked about like you try to make sure that you're present. Yeah. And when you say that, do you mean like living in the moment? Do you mean that you like also practice like mindfulness? Like what does what does that look like? It, it looks exactly like that. Um, I think one of the biggest problems we have as human is anxiety, overthinking, being overcautious and living out, living out of fear. And I believe that when you are present and you're aware of where, where you are in the very moment, you make way better decisions and you don't stop living out what you believe to be your best version. It also al- allows you to start gaining mastery over your emotional state as well. And it also allows you to make sure that your traumas are not making decisions for you and that. So it's more that mindfulness and that um, I think I, I got to an annoying place where I wasn't making any future plans and people just couldn't understand that because they'd be like, oh, can't you just commit to this time? And I'm like, if it's not paid, I'm not committing to it. Right? <laughs> it's like, I'll see where I am on that day. Like I'll deal with later, later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is such like uh like a far away concept to me because I am somebody who worries a lot about a lot of things. Like I can wake up in the middle of the night worried about something that's got nothing to do with like my immediate um you know conditions, which is part of the reason why I've gone back to therapy and I'm working through all of that stuff. But yeah, no, definitely leaving tomorrow in tomorrow and thinking more about being in the present is definitely like good advice for anyone everyone to practice also given like the year that we've had right we've been more stuck at home we've been confined in certain spaces you know and I know myself including have had a, a a very difficult time being confined to spaces but like you said you know it gives you an opportunity to sit to reflect to be mindful to enjoy today as today and not worry too much about the future so yeah no, thank you for Can that. Can I ask you a question about the overthinking? And hopefully yeah. your podcast will answer it. It's, and it's not an answer for me, it's an answer for yourself. When you, The voice that you are overthinking in, is it yours? 
No, it's not always mine. It's like, it's more like society expectations, like, you know, the expectations of my job, the expectations of like my activism, the things I've committed to being able to like see them and follow them through, not disappointing people, not letting other people down. (laughs) It's a whole lot of overthinking in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe, and this came from me and my son speaking about it, and I kind of started to try and work a few things out. The overthinking voice in our head, a lot of people believe it's actually them, and it's not. Um, you, will, your inner self, your true self, your God self, your spiritual self, will never design anything bad for you, will never tell you to not do something out of fear. But fear will come in masquerading and sounding exactly like you and it will start questioning everything you do. The problem with fear and that voice of anxiety is you can never win. Doubt will never let you win. So the problem is, is we keep entering into conversations with our doubts and the trick is to not enter into that conversation because you, you can't win. Your doubt will always come up with another doubt so once you said, so if you say, I want to go over there, you'll say, why are you going over there? And if you explain, then it will, it will just come with another counter argument and you can't win. It's, it's, the be- it's the best lawyer in the world when it comes to you. <laughs> like you cannot win. You cannot win. So the best thing is as soon as it comes, it's just to say, shut up, go away <laughs> and move and do what you're doing. So all this activism and everything that your spirit wanted you to do, you've naturally done it. But then fear will start coming back and trying to tell you you shouldn't be doing that or blah, 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 and just trying to raise its doubts. But the the more you ignore it or the more you focus on being present, like to meditate or to do something, as soon as that voice starts talking, just find something else to do. It quietens it down, absolutely. And And I think a lot of people need to learn how to do this because this inner voice that we have it's a it's a construct of a bygone time back in the day um, BC times when you'd be walking and an animal could just take you out or there was lawlessness so if someone was jealous of you they would just take your stuff and they could kill you and that so it was a flight or fright um, a flight or fight response that would gear your body up to sense danger but the more technologically advanced that we've become in life, and that this voice has grown with us because it's built into our DNA code mm. to be passed on, to be passed on. Like a, a rabbit doesn't know that it's um, going to get eaten by a lion when it's just born. But as soon as it sees it, it senses danger. Mm. Mm. So it doesn't go and play near the lion. It hides because it's a, it's fearful. But no, nothing's taught it, so it's in our DNA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So therefore, this voice has also been programmed into our DNA but it's become it's become a voice now and it starts talking to us and you have to do your utmost to be mindful of it and realize it's not you thank you thank you very no no thank you very much on that I'm definitely going to reflect on on what you've just said so um we just want to round up so in our line of work we hear a lot about stereotypes about black men black men's sexuality and also like black men the community of black men being difficult to reach so as this you know we're a sexual and reproductive health organization and podcast we just wanted to know particularly around black men black fathers parents and families what do you think that can be done to improve some of the sexual and reproductive services that are on offer? Uh, We need to talk more. We definitely need need to talk more. Um, The things that are available to us need to also raise their profile. Uh, We have to destigmatize talking about sex. I think it's funny, like, if you look at our music that's aimed at young people, it's nothing but sex and derogatory themes in it but yet to talk about sex openly is quite difficult like a lot of parents don't talk to their children about sex first and foremost a lot of kids are uncomfortable talking to their parents about sex anyway and that but like from the moment my son was born like I let him know listen this is how you got it you know (laughs) like so the more embarrassed (laughs) you are about this that's a reflection on you so I would just keep putting it on him like don't be afraid to talk about this stuff 
So something that thinks for that, so something that comes up in our work quite often and there's a clear absence of in in our sector despite the statistics. So for context for our listeners and for yourself, um, the worst sexual health statistics are experienced by black men, particularly uh, men of Caribbean descent, but also very high for men of African descent. Um, so really high rates of things like um, gonorrhea. Um, and also we know due to migration patterns in part like HIV. And some of the stereotypes that Edda mentioned we get are about like bravado and hypersexuality and, you know, like people having all this sex and you know, for a lot of young people, that is some of the issue. But there's also issues about like poverty and like, you know, how people perceived. But there's an absolute lack of somebody kind of taking up that issue. Like Edom and I talk about the disparities experienced by black women and the problems there. There's just a lack of particularly heterosexual black men speaking about this issue. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on this about like where, you know, the conversation goes and how to you know get people to talk about this more because it's just as much of an issue as things where we get people being community advocates in relation to something like knife crime yeah but we don't we don't see see anyone take on take on this issue uh, i don't know why more black men are not taking this up and that maybe it's just not a concern and Sometimes it's also like fear of being the first one to go. Um, I used to work in construction and I was in there for like five years. And what I loved about it, it's probably like one of the most misogynistic places to work. And uh, and the racism's rife as well and that. But it was a good environment. Like I, 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 I thrived in that. I really enjoyed it because men were men. And one thing I did notice about white guys, they would speak about like, oh, I got gonorrhea off this girl and blah, blah, blah. And they would think, oh, I had a wank the other day. And they would say stuff like this openly. And I'm like, we don't do that as black women. We don't talk like that. And I'm like, why don't we talk like that? Like, that's real. That's real. So I would then tell my friends that silly stuff like, you know what, before you link that girl, you should have a wank and see how you feel, you know? Mm. If you still want to call it afterwards. And that, and they were like, uh, what are you talking about? But it was <laughs> such a hard thing to bring in. So I had to bring it in with humour and that. But we, I think we're just not comfortable talking about this sort of stuff. And I, I, I don't know what needs to change in regards, but we have to get comfortable talking about this sort of stuff. Yeah, I definitely think that's um, right. And that I think somebody like visibility and people breaking that taboo and stigma would really help because as I said the statistics show and in my practice a lot of people you know experience the same thing like you see a lot of young black men and you know then they go out there and like nobody is talking about this issue but clearly in our practice there's a disproportionate number of black men in the sexual health clinic Mm, Um, And I had one encounter that I have spoken about elsewhere in my other work where like a young black man came in and he was treating, we were treating him like his third time in a short space of time for gonorrhea. And often there is that thing that it's like bravado, young man won't use condoms, doesn't feel nice. And like, I hear that stuff in my work all the time. That of course is really common. But then I was like, let me just try and have a bit more of a detailed conversation with this, this young man. And he was like, oh yeah, I haven't got housing. And basically he was just like banging people for a a sofa. Basically it was transactional sex, right? Because it was a young, good looking black man, like people hadn't bothered to ask those questions. Like the assumption had been like, he was just having a good time. (laughs) Wow. Wow. You know, so I think there was a lot of, for me personally, I feel there's a lot of other structural stuff that people don't really associate with the statistics that we're we're seeing it always is just like sometimes those stereotypes that Edda mentioned like oh black men really like sex they've got big penis they just want to like get it on all the time (laughs) yeah as a young man you take advantage of those myths Mm. like you don't mind them when you're a young man Mm. 
Like, I remember the first time seeing Linford Christie and he was complaining about how he was the media was portraying him because they used to call him Lunchbox Linford, the runner, because in his mm. type thing, it, it, it was very evident. <laughs> that, I'm so sorry. Like, what? <laughs> and, wow. So, like, he, he started complaining and I was like, dude, if I was working with what you've got... Like, yeah, I'll be raking it in. <laughs> That's what my young mind said to me. Because I'll be like, yeah, you can get girls in it. You get girls in it. <laughs> but there's something off off with it. Like being portrayed that way and how we glamorise it. We do. Like we, we all like to be the alpha male, the peacock. And, that. and we all can't be the peacock. So we need to find other ways to express ourselves. And it, it's definitely lacking. I was actually just, while, while you was talking... I was thinking that the only time I've heard in a rap song a rapper admitting that he's 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 had the clap was um, Kendrick Lamar on a song called Money Trees. Mm, he talks about uh, when condom rappers wasn't cool mm. and he went to have sex with a girl named Sheree and he ran and told all his boys I had sex with her and then uh, weeks later Usher Raymond's burn came on. And, that, and mm. I was like, oh, <coughs> Oh, yeah, it's on a song called Money Trees. Go and go and listen to it. But rappers don't admit this. But I know a lot of rappers have STDs. Mm. You can't be that much in the spotlight and be reckless going from town to town and not had an episode. Mm. Like, mm. yeah, of course. The way black men carry on, we go on like we've never had an episode. Yeah, when I go sexual clinic, I see bare black guys. Well, yeah, like when we when we look at the statistics and we and we and like there's more research is done around this issue, right? We find out that like lots of black men go to sexual health clinics, right? So the issue is not that people aren't going to clinics, people are, but I guess the issue and the problem we're having is people understanding that you know ha- constantly having SDS, have to constantly go to the clinic is actually not good for your sexual, your reproductive, and your mental health, right? Like it's getting people to think about taking preventative measures, getting people to think about sex that is still pleasurable, but also being safe. Right. Like I feel like that's the that's the issue. That's the problem that we're having in terms of trying to get to people. And, you know, there should be and we've talked about this, Annabelle, there should definitely be more sort of outreach, more of engagement activities targeted around heterosexual men, heterosexual black men specifically, right? Because like when we see the data, the problem is that people, the problem is not that people aren't getting tested or people don't know. The problem is that it keeps happening and the rate is high. So that how do we educate people to get to a point to say, you know what, actually this is going to impact your mental, your physical and your reproductive health, right? Like thinking about those things and still having the sex that you want to have like we want people to have sex we want people to have amazing sex right we want people to be safe doing it and I think that that's like where we're not quite capturing people's like minds around it that's what I think anyway the, uh, the other thing is it's really hard to think because my whole thing is once once you've gone bareback for want of a better term <laughs> it's hard to go back to using a condom like, it's really hard. And then I remember when I was younger, the whole thing of, like, stopping to get up to go and get a condom, I had to make it a ritual, like, cool. Cause, and then what I ended up doing was, like, cool, using the condom as a way of um, getting c- consent. So you'd be right. in the moment and you go, should I go and get a condom? And if you hear a yes, that means, cool, it's consent. And that, so I'll go and get the condom. And then before I put it on, reinsert I'm about to put it on you sure you want to do this and kind of doing it like that so but I think that was more me being afraid of going to jail <laughs> as opposed to just having safe sex but it's also trying to maybe inform guys how to get up and use that moment put it into your sexual behavior pattern because I don't know if you you ladies know about men's sexual behavior patterns but we all have a game that we've run to get to the point we're trying to reach. Like we either say something to a woman and that, and it's trying to insert getting a condom into that, that uh, routine, basically. Thank you. I think also talking about consent and like ways to build in consent, I think is really, really, I think it's going to be helpful for some of our listeners and bringing that into the conversation. I think also something that is like overlooked, right, is that in terms of like, 
going raw, bareback, whatever you want to call it, right? I think a lot of women, people with vaginas that are having penetrative sex also prefer that sensation. So I think often like it is put on just men, people with penises are like, oh, it's, we're just having that experience. But actually I experienced that from a lot of people as well that are like a lot of women as well saying, I don't want to use a condom for that reason. And that's why I think screening and regular screening is such an essential tool. And I think it's wildly, wildly like overlooked and understood that you should be doing it if you're changing your partner frequently, like really, really regularly. So I just kind of wanted to, um, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but your your last point just made me, made me think. Um, so you have sons yes plural yes um so and you know you've got a younger older son so can you just tell us a little bit about in terms of having this conversation how have you embarked upon having a conversation about sex sexuality and all of that with your children well same thing um my my youngest is only two so I don't have to have that conversation yet but I'm I'm ready for him but my old, older son, it was an easy conversation. Like, it, it was always easy. And literally did it with humour. I was like, ah, oh, dude, bareback's great. It's really great. But sometimes the consequences are not worth it. And it was having a conversation around that. Like, if you're going to do bareback, you don't know where she's been. You don't know blah, blah, blah. Like, that same game you're running, why do you think you're so special that only you have access to her like we're living in a different world where women are empowering themselves and a lot of times the way women empower themselves is through their sexuality which is their right to do and and so having that sort of conversation with him um with my nieces um because I've got some nieces as well that I I am kind of like the father figure in their life they've just recently gone off to university and I know their mum didn't have the conversation with them in terms of just sex but I was also talking to them and was like look you're, you've, you've become an adult and this is your first run at being a, a young adult because you've got freedom you haven't got your mum watching over you in the house and you can bring boys home and you can do whatever you need to do but there's going to be a lot of alcohol and a lot of drugs and whatnot and we make some silly decisions when we're high or intoxicated so what you need to do is make sure that you're in a safe space before you do any of these things. Don't do them if you're not in a safe space. Once you're in a safe space and that have your rules, like, because when you're intoxicated, just have like little limits that you go to. So if anything's about to happen, make sure you're still safe. And that when you come out of it, you're not coming out of it feeling unsafe. So Make sure you've got condoms in your room. Own your, have your own condom stash. And um, I wouldn't be correct of me, given we're decolonizing contraception and this is our sex agenda podcast, for me not to ask, did you, with your older son, also have the conversation about contraception and pregnancy? Because often yeah. that's just reserved for people who get pregnant yeah. and people never you know, have that chat. Yeah, I told, I told, and the way I did it was through humour. I was like, dude, my pull-out game's weak. That's why you're here. <laughs> right. When okay. it gets, and I told him, when it gets too sweet, when it gets too sweet, you may think that that withdrawal um, uh, method works. Dude, when it gets too sweet and you hit that moment, you're just thinking, ah, just let me go for gold. And you're not thinking, because you can't think in that moment. Like... I believe that in that moment is probably like the closest to God you can ever get. I think it's that moment there, like you're bringing life into the world. I mean, orgasms are orgasms are good. Or if you wrap it up or use some good contraception, you won't be bringing life into this world. <laughs> um, but that's what I told him though. So I used humor. I get him to start thinking. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And you know, we we have a joke in sexual health, which is. What do you call people that use the withdrawal method? What? Parents. Ah. <laughs> so that's ah. that, that our joke in sexual health. That was, but I that also was think cheesy. Wait, it is cheesy. I think more and more we also need to make men, those with penises, more aware of people 
the wide range of contraception, basically, or just even asking the person they're having sex with, because this is another assumption. And I have, I have brothers, a lot of male cousins, and like, sometimes, you know, I'll say to them, like, okay, you, you know, you went to have sex with that person, but did you actually ask them if they were on contraception? And they're just like, oh, if she wasn't on contraception, then she would have, yeah. you know, used a condom. I'm like, really? <laughs> no, see, this is this is the actual conversation I had with my son and I've had it with a lot of men as well. I think that is a perfect kind of note to um, end on. Thank you so much, Darwood. It's been so great having you um, and look forward to seeing your future work. Just to round up, are there any things that you would like to plug? I'm about to make a film with Voices of London for adult black dads, um, which kind of just puts black fathers into the conversation. It's just, we're just fathers and that, and just trying to make sure that we do that in a sensitive, interesting way. So I'm doing that. And I'm also like yourself, I'm a writer. I'm writing a book called The Gospel According to Black Jesus. Hopefully I should finish that both by the end of the year. So yeah, yeah. Amazing. We didn't even get into much about your creativity, but that's amazing. We'll put everything in the references. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. So that has just been such a wonderful and inspiring conversation. And I hope that um, our listeners get a new different perspective that we don't always get on the podcast. So growth, we're into our growth section. So for people that don't know, growth is when we share something, I don't know, a poem, often quotes, something that's kind of inspired um, or made us think over the last um, couple of weeks. Um, And this was taken from one of the articles around um, Billy Porter um, sharing his HIV positive status. And this is a quote from him. The truth is the healing. And I hope this frees me. I hope this frees me so that I can experience real unadulterated joy, so that I can experience peace, so that I can experience intimacy, so that I can have sex without shame. This quote is just really beautiful in so many things. I think it relates to his experience. I think it relates to the experience of so, so many people that, have been told to feel ashamed about their sexuality or, you know, being HIV positive. And I just really loved it immediately. I also felt frustration that people feel forced into sharing or, you know, being outed sometimes so that they can feel like liberated like that society has almost like forced people to share parts of themselves that they don't necessarily want to share um and not always because of stigma just because sometimes that's just not something people find is like the defining part of themselves and they don't want to be defined by other people they want to define themselves right um so I just thought you just spoke about so many things I don't know what you think (laughs) yeah no I 100% agree I think like I think this story and like Billy like probably like resonates with us a lot more because we have worked like very closely with people who live with HIV like we know people who live with HIV we have friends who live with HIV right and as much as they don't want it to it affects so many aspects of their lives right so this idea that you know people can be comfortable in who they are that we continue to challenge and fight stigma is incredibly important and and I couldn't have said that better than Billy did to be honest like and it's like people living with HIV deserve 
joy. They deserve to experience peace. They deserve intimacy and they deserve to have sex without shame. Like there's no better way to put it. And I hope that it inspires people all over. I think that it gives people living with HIV some comfort, you know, and I think it will go a really long way to challenging stigma. And it's a great quote, modern Annabelle, um, and a fitting quote for, for our great section this week. Yeah. Yes. So on that note, I'm actually off to um, teach our first in our series of sex agenda <laughs> workshops this evening. Yes, so you I'm are. Gonna be, yeah, teaching our Mythbuster workshop, which we've been creating in collaboration with Homegirls Home Unite, which is an amazing nonprofit community organization that brings together the first daughters of immigrants that often shoulder a lot of responsibility. Yes. So, um, yeah, love them, love their yeah. work, and really excited um for this workshop, and hope they get a lot out of it. And also, I'm tag teaming with my cousin, Aww. my big cousin, who's yeah, he's a GP registrar and with a special interest in sexual health, and that's that's nice as well. Love that. So little family yeah, affair. Hope, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so funny because actually, when we were cousins, when we were cousins, sorry, when we were little, mm-hmm. we were so competitive and we like hated each other. Like, hated look at the each growth. Other. <laughs> growth. Exactly, exactly. No, you two growing. <laughs> Honestly, major growth. And now she's like messy. Um, but yeah, it's so it. funny because our parents were like, are they like born like a year apart? They're going to be like besties. You like, <laughs> was like, no. Nah. Like, yeah, we were just like, no. I was like, she just does gymnastics everywhere. She's a show off. Like, <laughs> like, who is she? That was what I was um, I I was... I, I was genuinely a bit like that as a as a seven year old child. Um, but <laughs> thank you so much for sticking yes. with us. And, and just final um, plug: please don't forget to fill out our survey. It really does help and inform the work that we do. And we like to hear from you guys what you think about the podcast. So please fill it in, and we shall see you in the next episode. Have a nice week, everyone. Bye.